Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by Le Peuple Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit, understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Hello and welcome to the Pain Podcast. My name is Bart van Bruggen, I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist and here with me today is Professor Warren Mosley um, here in Amsterdam. Quite excited to have you here. Uh, Great to be here, Bart. And um, an opportunity to sit together. We're actually in a brewery um, and I guess that's... Um, that's where we should be when we do something with the pub. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In fact, is this this is actually the brewing vat, right? This here, is the right? brewing vat. Yes, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, we're actually in the middle of the process of the brewing, and it's quite amazing at the Brau in Amsterdam Houthaven, which is a great place to be, and uh, we're welcoming a group of about eighty people in uh, a couple hours. Excellent. Um, hopefully, they will enjoy the evening with us, and it's one of the things we. We're excited about coming together again. Yeah, that's great. So th thank you for joining, Lorma. And um, um, as I, as we are um, traditionally almost like 30 times, uh, 30, 32 episodes already, we're oh, asking right. what excites you uh, at the moment in your work, in your life. Well, we're a pain podcast probably or something sure. <laughs> in that area. I'll, I'll limit the reflections on life. Perhaps. Yeah, that will be right. Although I really... Uh, well, first, thank you for having me. It's great to be in Amsterdam. What a, what a great city, actually. I, I love Amsterdam. I think it's fantastic. Anyway, to your question, what excites me? Uh, and we thought we'd veer away from what excites me in life, but I, I think that they're actually very linked, what excites me in my work and what excites me in my life. And um, yeah, there's, a, there's a few things, I guess. Uh, I guess I have a... Uh, a strong, a strong thirst for the challenge that we face, and I, for whatever journey reasons, find myself um, in the thick of it with the challenge of chronic pain. Um, and that's, a lot of that's been an accidental journey, but um, I'm excited. I'm excited by the challenge, and if that, that may not make a lot of sense, but. I think the more we learn about how pain works and um, you know, the, the biological processes that are involved when someone feels pain, the more I get struck by how, how challenging this problem is actually and I find that exciting because that, that's the same as saying um, I get struck by how how complex and anyone who's ever heard me speak anywhere will know that I, you know, I'm really struck by our fearful and wonderful complexity as 
as humans. Um, some of the work being done in pain, you know, really demonstrates that that the degree of complexity is is way beyond what we thought it was ten years ago. Yeah, would you have underestimated it yourself? Oh yeah, I think I have underestimated uh, the the complexity of the system. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you think about my my own interface with the problem, uh, first as someone with a lived experience of chronic pain, then a uh, lived experience of recovery, uh, and then exposure to anatomy and biomechanics. And you know, I remember thinking then, oh, how how cool is this that that we you know, I did my honours on. I'm way off topic. Does this matter? No, no, it's all no. right. <laughs> I think <laughs> we're pretty good at planning um, it. You know, I um, yeah, I remember doing my honours as a, at the end of my physiotherapy degree, looking at how the the back of the foot moves during walking, and remember just being blown away by the complexity of of the tarsal joints, uh, and and the acceleration of of those joints during walking, you know, 3,000 degrees per second per second. And I remember thinking then how amazing it is that the tendons go through each other when they have to and they go around little loops and pulleys and yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I, then I started to learn more about neurophysiology and then neurobiology uh, and then you know, systems neuroscience and every single step of the way I've realised I underestimated the true complexity mm. of the system. And and now, I'm still having those. I mean, how fortunate is that? I'm 53. I've been working as a researcher uh, for um, however long. I guess it must be uh, 25 years. Yeah. Uh, working as a physio for 35 years, and uh, I still regularly have these moments of, wow, it's even more. Complex and for me, challenging and exciting, right? So, um, and yeah, there's a paper out this week in Nature, really throwing a potential cat amongst the pigeons of of brain imaging and how we understand how the brain does things. Oh, that's the AI paper. No, it's a it's a it's a paper that compared. Uh, explaining results of studies, 10,000 data sets uh, of brain imaging, explaining them according to the connectome, like how neurons connect to each other and specific brain areas do things, mm -hmm. to a modelling based on the shape of the skull, or the shape of the brain. Wow. Shape of the brain, that's important. Mm -hmm. And the shape of the brain modelling explained things way better than the connectome modelling, and uh, th this is a potential game changer for yeah. how we think the brain does stuff. Would you feel threatened in that way by these findings? Oh my God, we were on the, the wrong side. <laughs> uh, uh, no, not remotely. I mean, one one of the greatest things about science and being a scientist, and that definitely attracted me to to the work that I do is the obligation to be wrong, the obligation to take uh, really calculated risks intellectually. Um, but science gives you a framework for doing that um, and it gives you an inbuilt peer review system. 
while you're having the ideas, developing the theories, and it gives you total, not, a, not, not just total permission, total obligation to look for the inaccuracies and the mistakes in your thinking or in your hypothesizing. So, no, I, w whenever I learn new stuff, I think, cool, we are getting closer to the truth in, in this hopefully never-ending journey of truth-seeking. Yeah, and, and how that, so how do you, how do you create for yourself your next 10 years? Is that a gut feeling <laughs> or is that based on like a, on like an exciting finding like this nature paper that actually said, oh, the way we should look at the skull size or brain size. Yeah, yeah, brain shape. Shape. Um, yeah, so uh, look, the most... I always find it weird when people say look or listen before they say something, so I apologise that I said that because it's, it's a silly preface, but I guess what it's meant to say is what I'm about to say is honest, uh, and that is I don't actually don't think about the next 10 years ever. Uh, I, I really am not a planning guy, right, and I, one of the biggest challenges I have in my work is preparing grant applications that set out what you're going to do for the next five years. Mm -hmm. the, the grant applications that set out a project, no worries. A five-year project, no worries. I love doing that and uh, I've had, you know, enjoyed that time. But working out, so what, where am I going to drive the field in 10 years or what am I going to achieve in 10 years? I, I never have those thoughts. What I have is uh, what do I want to do this week, sort of stuff this month. Uh, and, uh, today um, but the new discoveries the I don't I don't have any sense of feeling threatened by them uh, unless they are discoveries that I guess I make personally that reveal to me where I've had a negative influence on someone or something uh, I don't know if it's feeling threatened. Uh, it's probably not threatened so much as disappointed, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Is that the is that is that the downside of being a scientist, especially in the clinical, where your findings may be sort of implemented in day day to day life, like the educational yeah. bit? Is that what you're referring to? Is yeah. There's also. Well, we talked about the number need to harm. I remember myself teaching this well the risks of teaching well what is it <laughs> it's nothing right well you can't go wrong uh, uh, actually we know now some people do there is a risk so how would you yeah you're right to go into this uh this direction yeah, so, yeah yeah so where is there something you should worry about as a researcher but also as a clinician when you are excited about something and you started to deliver this treatment or this approach if you like uh, and maybe we're well, we should have reservations. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't think we need to, you know, worry in that sense of, of being worried about it. But what I, what I do think, as a, I guess as a scientist and as a clinician, but I guess as a, as a, clinical scientist, or a science-based clinician, um, yeah, I think there is, uh, the. We have to be very vigilant 
in applying the tried and true methods of science and science communication uh, to to avoid the risk of harm and that might sound a bit ambiguous but if I if I take the most obvious example from my own science clinical science journey uh, you know when the, the the beginning of of explaining pain from my perspective was a clinical observation that when and, and I found myself as a clinician treating people with chronic pain disorders I just felt like I wasn't helping them and I had nothing mm. like and this and this is in the in the 90s and my in my toolbox I had a good range of manual therapies including uh, acupuncture, craniosacral therapy, mobilizations, McKenzie's, uh, nags and snags, all the mulligan stuff. I've done all those courses and uh, dry needling wasn't a thing, I don't think, but we used to do these soft tissue releases with wooden spoons and uh, we felt that, yeah, this was going to be good if we could see evidence of damage that we'd done. Yeah. And I found treating people with chronic pain disorders, my toolbox just didn't have any effective tools in it, you know. And and where, and and my nature is to try and understand things and to explore things. And when I would explore, in a way to understand those techniques, I became disillusioned with them because they didn't fit scientific paradigms. A lot of them, uh, and and I found myself just being honest with patients about that. Part of my journey and saying look i don't think i've got now i could do this it's meant to work like that but that makes no sense mm. uh, and the reason that i don't think it works is because and then i would try and give them an understanding of why i thought those techniques weren't going to be helpful and this is more about a problem within your at that time i would say within your central nervous system and it was an observation that that patients started to come back after that first session feeling a bit better and I would say things like I don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what you did but can we do a bit more of it and I'd think back and I'd look at my notes and all all we did was me explain why I wasn't very confident that I could be of help and this is the biological justification so that's where my interface with explaining pain started uh, and then I did randomized controlled trials and uh, I was very keen to make sure I didn't tell anyone this was good until we had randomized controlled trial to show it. And I compared those, uh, that in the first trial, a small trial, I hadn't learned how to do research properly or anything. A uh, small trial, I compared it to a back school education type thing. Uh, and then the next trial, I compared it to ongoing usual care. And what I was really naive to was this complexity issue that doing anything in a caring, empowering, respectful way, I now understand should reduce the protective mechanisms of, of the patient. I didn't really appreciate that or understand that at the time and I thought the clinical trials clearly showed, look, the thing here is the content. I've got to deliver the content. Uh, and that's where, and then I met Dave Butler and, and he was coming at 
explain pain from a different perspective, and that's when we decided to write the book. And so we wrote the book after two clinical trials, and then there's now systematic review uh, in process suggests there's 78 randomised controlled trials that include some form of that didactic explain pain thing. And what's, I think, really obvious is that it's not as good as I thought it was. And uh, I spoke at lots of conferences, delivered lots of courses with the conviction that this is better than it actually was. And by this I mean the content and words and all that sort of stuff. And over the next 20 years I think I've, uh, yeah, I've had these, these moments of, uh, I, I ride a bike, I, like, I love cycling. And if anyone rides a bike they'll know that Campagnolo components clunk into gear. Oh, they're beautiful, they clunk in, you know you're in the next gear. And, and in my view, Shimano doesn't do that, right? and SRAM doesn't do that, but Campag clunks in, and I feel like I've had these real clunking moments of realising, oh, wow, if I hadn't have been so naive on that, I wouldn't have influenced the field in that way. And I think the influence that, that I'll be thinking about in those clunk moments is an influence that I'm disappointed that I, I had. Uh, is that actually, it's a long, long-winded yeah. answer to your question, but... No, it's a reflection, I guess, but as, as I know you were, uh, this is the way you think, right? So it's also the path of progress, So it's, Yeah, totally agree. It's like, could it have happened without? <laughs> could it have been... So, we now know, so just bring up the results trial, for example, and there, yeah. there's a trial on functional therapy, and there's yeah. something like processing or brain reprocessing therapy, all sort of have the didactic, either more behavioral or more cognitive style, but there is, there seem to be like, it's established, right? We can't, we can't afford ourselves as, as therapists or doctors not telling people about mm. what we actually do know, that the brain is actually involved. So it's, there is, there is, there is a shift that happened. So, Totally. Is it like we moved too far or is it out of control? I think we just didn't move move perfectly and and you know I I I, have, I place great value on self-reflection as a person, as a scientist, as a husband, as a dad, you know, whatever, as a friend. Uh, and I feel like I have pretty high standards on self-reflection and when I reflect on that that journey I spoke about with the development of explained pain and learning over 20 years that it's it's not as good as I thought it was back then that's been a gradual learning process uh, made available by self-reflection and data and and just accepting the data right and as, as I said before as a scientist you got to accept the data and and you're obliged to move on when the data demonstrate you are wrong uh, but I, in that self-reflection process, I, I still feel pretty comfortable about the way I went around uh, about it. Um, definitely observe motivations that were in place that I probably don't have strongly anymore. You know, motivations around uh, probably pretty deep-seated what you, you know, who you are as a person, right? Mm, I was I was, yeah. I was thirty. Now I'm fifty-three. Um, but I, 
yeah, I, I, your point was a really generous and I, and I think good one that uh, maybe that's, that's just what had to happen. Uh, but the field has definitely moved and I'm not claiming that influence. You know, there's a lot of people who have influenced the field in excellent ways um, and powerful ways. And you mentioned those three more recent clinical trials. I think each of those are very important trials. Uh, but you, we can go beyond those trials to look at the body of evidence. I think the body of evidence clearly, clearly states consistently that that even that old form of didactic pain education about primarily the central nervous system and brain's role in pain uh, is a good thing to do. I think the evidence is irrefutable on that. Uh, BMJ published a paper from Manuela Ferreira's group in, uh, in Sydney a really big network meta-analysis of a whole range of psych interventions plus active or physiotherapy interventions and concluded that of everything, pain education plus active care is, is the most sustainable benefit getter. So look, it's good. And one of the arguments I'll make in master sessions uh, will be uh, it is good, but let's go for better than good. Uh, and, and that's one, one aspect of the RESOLVE trial that I'm truly excited about. Uh, and, and that is that we, I, I'm very confident that even what I would call now old school pain education or what is generally known as pain neuroscience education, which we've, we've moved on from that label, but that, that's the common label, pain neuroscience education is good. And if you're treating people in pain, I think you should have skills in educating people about the biological causes of their pain. Uh, but what we know is that it can be way better. And you started this conversation by what excites you. And I talked about challenge and complexity. Uh, and, and wrapped up at the core of that is, I think over the last 10 years, we've seen very compelling data to say that Pain education is hard to do as a clinician. Pain education is hard to do as a patient. As a rule, even pretty highly trained pain neuroscience educators are only having about a 50% hit rate on education. And I think part of my influence on the field that I, I'm disappointed about in reflection is, is just how how influential those explain pain papers and the way of thinking about it and the didactic education has been uh, because what i think it's it's done and the first time i talked about this in a sort of field-wide apology was at a um, plenary of the european pain congress a few years ago pre-covid where i said look it looks to me particularly in north america and a bit in europe and a bit in australia that clinicians have taken this and seen pain education is something I do. And if I do it, I can tick that off as done. And we've lost the point of pain education. The point of pain education is learning and understanding. And I think what I'm really excited about at the moment is that uh, the, the compelling data that suggests that if, if we can do it well, 
if people learn the things that uh, the rest of the data tell us are important to learn, then there are truly transformative outcomes on the table. Mm. Outcomes that we just have not seen in the chronic pain field. And I, it's not a 10 year plan, but a 10 year hope is that in 10 years, we will all be doing our pain education at a level where we're getting a ideally 100% hit rate. Uh, and that will take all of us doing it. Uh, but if we can get that, then I think we've got a genuine chance of reducing the burden. Yeah, so with that, maybe it's a matter of using the wording, but like educating as, for me, I'm associating like, like old school learning, right? Whether in my clinical experience, it's about figuring out, feeling, exploring, trying, experimenting, and therefore learning. So yeah, I'm, I'm from the same school, right? So I'm pretty biased there, but um, so do we, do we have the right skill set? Uh, I don't think we do. Uh, and by we, I presume you mean basically allied health professionals? Yes, I do. That's yep. what I mean. And, and I'd include doctors as well. No, they're no. not trained in this. Yes. Uh, we're trained to be health professionals, not teachers. But there is a massive body of knowledge in, in teaching, in conceptual change education, in conceptual change science, and in learning in, at the, how do neural networks work? Uh, how does the brain get better at doing stuff? How, how does the human get better at doing stuff? H how can we tap into that? And that's the last sort of six or seven years of research and clinical stuff around pain education. We've been going very hard on integrating the best of that, innovating to really target well, what changes in neural networks plasticity. So why don't we increase plasticity before we try and get across this challenging concept? Uh, so we're mucking around with things like that. And I say mucking around, I'm, I'm devaluing the scientific rigor that we put into all those things. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, just imagine that part. Just imagine if you were confident when someone with chronic pain turns up because you had the skills, you had the knowledge, you had the intellectual infrastructure around you, you had other health professionals who were on the same song sheet. Just imagine what that experience is like as a clinician. And there are now pockets emerging of, of that. And, and I think it will only spread. Because yeah. we can't afford not to do our best on this problem. No, I agree with that, yeah. I think in the, basically every clinician or healthcare professional, allied health professional will definitely feel pretty uncomfortable with doing things that don't work mm, or you, yeah. you will be burned out at some point if you do things that don't relate to, well, well there is some, you're eager for results to some yep. degree and you want yep. to see people getting better and if they don't get better yep. and they're not comfortable, then you will get a very sad patient but also a very sad clinician, I'm yeah. assuming, yeah. So just in summary, uh, Lars, so, I think it was really interesting to to hear your bit of your journey and your where as a as a scientist, but also that and just I'm reflecting now. So mm -hmm. if you allow me to, um, as a clinician, don't 
you have to take the risks sometimes. And you do things as good as you can, right? If you do your best, right, you'll get the best of the knowledge you can get at that moment, that point in time, you will and you will succeed, <laughs> but you maybe not you will maybe regret some things, but it's alright. As long as you know you you really tried. And improving is also being open for the suggestion that that you might you might be wrong. It wasn't as good yeah. <laughs> as you thought it would be. So the 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 let's say the 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 bias we have in our results in general, and when people are other people are presenting like actually these are the real results, you might be a bit disappointed. But I, I like the idea of pulling yourself up and like, all right, we can do better. And there is so much. Oh evidence for things you can actually, you can increase your skill set to get get it right. And and, um, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear and anxiety in our profession of doing the wrong thing. Right. I do believe there is a, a fear for change. Yeah. So and there we stick with things that have you, well you told me like the wooden spoons to use really sounds like fascia therapy today with all funky right. and spirit with all funky gear and, and uh, mobilization um, instruments if you like that are like hot and popular at the moment but we, we've been there we've done that and and sometimes oh. these waves <laughs> uh, of therapy and but also reflection I think that's um, we talked about that earlier is like part of keeping oh. keep going and improving yourself and you you're allowed to be wrong, right? As long as you've done, yeah. you've done it by the best you have at that stage. Yeah, I think yeah, there's just two things I'd like to quickly respond to there that uh, really resonated with me. One is uh, that you, and this I think this takes a lot of the the burden off us as clinicians. It certainly took a burden off me when I when I learnt more and more about science. I love science and, and what I mean by that is I love the process of the most tried and true process of truth seeking uh, and you know, I guess I'm a truth seeker uh, but the the reduction in burden uh, that I experienced when I I'd stopped evaluating myself on as a clinician on outcomes at the end of the day. This, this is a controversial thing to say, right? And I started more focusing on, did I do my very best in that moment uh, with that patient mm. in that context? And by my very best, I, I mean, did I self-reflect? Did I respect? Was I kind? Was I consistent with the truth as I understand it to be? Uh, did I lie or not? And, and I say that because I think we often do find ourselves lying as healthcare professionals without really realising it, where we we might make up a theory for how something works or we just use a theory and we haven't really thought about whether that theory could be true or not. Uh, so that that idea of saying, did, am I the best I could have been right now? Uh, and that's my yardstick. I found that very liberating as a clinician working with people with complex pain and other challenging problems. Because there's so many things, and they're a human. They make decisions and all that sort of stuff, right? The other, th the other thing that really struck me as you were talking was something that I, I have, in, I just, I just feel it, and that is a desire to understand. And 
when I see something work, so let's say we're talking about the wooden spoon or, or you're talking about modern day facial therapies, uh, there are two questions that clinicians could ask. One is, do people get better? And that may be the case, and I think we have to be very careful to our thinking errors, our biases, all those sort of stuff. The next question is, if they get better, why do they get better? What's the active component of care? And, and, and in scientific trials, we do our very best to try and understand that because that's progress. So we say, okay, well, if they get better because of this mechanism, let's get better at that mechanism. And if there's anything around that mechanism that is potentially suboptimal, get rid of it. If it's, if it's not contributing to the treatment effect, get rid of it. If it's time consuming or if it's dangerous or harmful in particular, I think that about, I mean, we used to, we used to interpret the success of our treatment by whether it caused tissue damage. But breaking the Hippocratic Oath, not that I'm a medical doctor, but all, all health professionals should yeah, have a sense harm. of that. Do not harm, you but do. we are harming. And harming is, we think is part of the treatment. And, you know, I'll eat my hat if in 10 years, there are very good double-blind placebo-controlled trials that show the harm is important. It just doesn't make sense to me. But if it does, I'll eat my hat. I think that's a good finish. I've got a last question. It's a, 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 a traditional one as well. Uh, we do. We can invite two people tonight. They to have a drink, like a good glass of maybe a nice South Australian Pinot. Uh, or cap sav, if you like to. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and um, who would that be? You can name anyone. Just dead or alive? Doesn't matter. Oh, within the context of this podcast, uh, Patrick Wall, um, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him, but the interactions I had, a couple of pub nights, um, yeah, just a great interrogative thinker, sharp, sharpest pain scientist that I'll ever engage with. So within the spirit of, of this podcast, I think I'd invite uh, Pat, Pat Wall. And, and I wonder if, uh, you know, someone that I would love to hear talk about this sort of stuff, if they thought no one else was listening except me, would be the Dalai Lama. Uh, I've chatted with pain with about pain with the Dalai Lama, but never just the two of us over a one -on -one. table. If it was a one-on-one -on -one, uh, without anyone else, no, um, no chance that anyone else would ever hear it. I'd love to know what he thought about a few things. That will be a good combination, Patrick Wall and the Dalai Lama. Yeah, actually, it'd be fun to watch those two at it. Um, I reckon Patrick Wall would be the sharper of the two, but I might be wrong. <laughs> you might be wrong. Yeah, there may be some surprises there. Yeah. All right. So this is this has been a lovely conversation so far, and I enjoy that a lot. And um, me too, Bart. Some yeah, some unexpected directions we took. So I think that's um, um, the way we like to go here. So um, uh, thank you. Joining. Real pleasure. Thank you for listening. Um, if you're listening, you find this interesting, nice, or great, uh, um, give us a like or a follow us on our social media uh, our social media platforms, and um, love to see you around. Thank you for listening. <laughs>